0: I think the first thing anybody can do is just ask themselves, what resonates with me? It may be food insecurity, it may be homelessness, it may be education, health care, it could be sex trafficking, but what makes you sit up a little bit straighter and lean in a little bit more? And wherever you are, there's somebody or bodies in your community that's doing that. Welcome to One Next Step the most practical business podcast in the world, helping you get more done, grow your business and lead your team with confidence with tips and tools you didn't get in business school. Here are your hosts, Trisha Shortino and Lisa Ziveld.
1: Welcome to One Next Step, the practical business podcast that helps you run your business so it stops running you. I'm Trisha.
2: And I'm LZ. Today, we're going to talk about a topic very dear to our hearts, nonprofit organizations.
1: Bob Rogers is the CEO of Street Grace, an amazing nonprofit who continues the fight to completely eradicate sex trafficking, a multi-billion dollar illegal global industry. Some of the stories you read about this issue are heartbreaking, and I love that Street Grace is taking this head on and really making a difference.
2: Yeah, me too. Bob is doing incredible work, and we can't wait to talk to him about his story, what it's been like leading a nonprofit through a pandemic, and what the future looks like for nonprofit organizations. He has some valuable insight that I know we will all learn from. So let's get started. Hey, Bob, welcome to The One Next Step.
0: Thank you. Delighted to be here.
2: Well, we are super excited to talk to you today. We have so many nonprofit listeners out there. So I know that all the information you are going to share is just going to be a bunch of golden nuggets for them to take away. But before we get down to business, we like to have a little bit of fun. So I have kind of a silly question for you. Okay. Do you believe in car naming? Have you ever uh,
0: named your cars? Okay, I feel like I'm feel like i going to start on a bad note, but no, I do not. I, do not.
2: <laughs>
0: no! I feel like anything you name, you become too attached to, and a car oh. serves a purpose for me. Um, <laughs> and, um, and so while I enjoy them, and while I love them, and while I am particular about them, I have never named one.
2: OK, so you would just be like, hey, I'm going to go take the blue car or my car. Is it your car? Is that the.
0: It's my car. Yeah. OK. And I mean, and I guess it started as a boy. I mean, my first car was the Smokey and the Bandit Black Trans Am with mm, the Gold whoa. Eagle. And I feel like anything that anyone did to ever name that would only diminish the muscle power of the vehicle. So <laughs> I just nice. I guess I got started that way and I could never do it.
1: Well, oh, I man. I actually have to confess, I'm with you. I don't name my cars.
0: Good for you. That's funny. I have a son and two daughters, and all three of them name theirs. I don't know why. Same. Yeah. My
1: my daughter names her cars. Jocelyn. Yeah. <laughs> Is the <Yeah>. car's
0: <laughs> name? I know. I know. They're but real names. I, I don't it makes no name. sense.
2: <laughs> you know, I, I've gone in seasons. So <laughs> before, I have been in a season where I named it. I think it's because I named them when they're not very pretty and they like need some help. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a pity naming ceremony. That's pity. I, here. Think so. oh, I think that's, so. That's a whole not,
0: I, Pity naming's a whole other dimension. That's a whole topic. topic. Yeah.
2: But now I feel like um none of my cars have names cuz uh yeah. it's just the car, right? Yeah. Like so yeah, yeah. I'm with you. But Depends on the feeling and the pity naming for me.
1: Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, so to get to get down to the real juice here. Yes. uh, But before we get started, would you mind sharing a little bit about what led you to join Street Grace at their CEO? Like, what were the events? How did that happen? Um, What's your story? A little bit about joining Street Grace.
0: Yeah, if you, it, it's a really interesting question. And if somebody ever took the time to look at my resume, they would probably think that I had serious ADD or I just was very confused. So I, uh, I spent a little time doing at, at Waffle House for about nine years, and then I owned a retained executive search firm. And then I, um, I'm gonna say I stumbled, but I feel like the steps were ordered into the presidency of a graduate university that had a campus here in Atlanta and a campus in Chattanooga. In the course of doing that, we would graduate 65, 75 master's level counselors every year. They were always um, prepared for their licensure and the internships. And so they were, they were very appropriately certified and licensed in the state, but they had additionally taken other courses and other certifications. One of the things as we also did that is that we opened seven or eight counseling centers and mental health crisis centers around Metro Atlanta and in Tennessee, In the course of doing that, everywhere that we went, this issue of sexual trauma in Mm. some way, shape, or form seemed to always bubble to the forefront. You couldn't turn your head. You couldn't get away from it. It was just a reality that existed. As we continued to dig more into that, to learn more about trafficking and sexual exploitation, we had, you know, 60 or 75 Ph.D., professors that we could get out in the community and engaging with the medical profession and things like that about looking, how to look for signs and symptoms of things like this. And so it became a big issue to the school. It became a big issue to me. It became a big issue to the university. And we got got more and more involved. One day, I was walking down the campus in Chattanooga, saw and was headed to lunch, saw that we had a guest organization and a guest speaker in from uh, Human Trafficking And I thought, well, I'm going to do the good presidential thing and I'm going to stick my head in the back of the room for 10 minutes because this is important to us. And then I'm going to go to my lunch. And 55 minutes later, I was still standing there. I don't remember the question that was asked. I just remember the answer. And that was the guy was telling it, the, the guy from the not for profit was telling a story about a sting operation that had just taken place in the metro area and how Homeland Security, FBI, local and state law enforcement were all in the room. And in a rare turn of events, a trafficker actually delivered um, and drove someone who's being sold for sex to the hotel and dropped them off to come upstairs. They had cameras everywhere at the property. So when they did, they picked him, uh, they saw him, they arrested him before he got off the property, brought him up to the room and he was cuffed and waiting on transportation and the law enforcement folks knew him by name. And so the, wow. um, the, the not-for-profit guy, you know, asked if he could have a couple of minutes to talk to him. And they said, yeah. And he walked over and said, you know, hey, these folks all know you by name. They said, you've been arrested three other times for drug trafficking. If you're successful, you know, air quotes, successful at that, why would you start and get involved in human trafficking? And the guy wasn't mad. He wasn't angry. He wasn't bitter. He just looked up and he said, because... I can sell a bag of drugs once. I can sell a 13-year-old girl six or eight times a night. Um, and I just remember standing in the back of the room. And, and I'm embarrassed to say that I was you know, in my mid-40s at that time. And it's the very first time that the thought went through my mind, oh, this isn't a cause. This is evil. It's just yeah. evil. And I have two girls and I have a son um, and it just it just weighed. And so I went through the rest of the day, uh, went to my meetings and appointments, got back to the hotel room that night in Chattanooga. Um, 9.30, 10 o'clock was laying in bed, the TV off, the lights were out. And, and I'm just this grown man laying in a hotel bedroom and, and I'm crying. And I called my wife and I said, I, I don't know what's going on with me today. I mean, I just I'm just laying, I think my midlife crisis hit and I need a motorcycle.
2: Um, And I won't
0: tell you what she said, but it wasn't, it wasn't exceptionally kind. It's something like grow up and come home. Um, And and I did, but it started a year and a half journey of really trying to say, okay, now I know what am I going to do? And I could never, ever shake that question. Now, you know, Bob what are you going to do? And I wrestled. I wasn't courageous. I didn't run, get dressed and run into the fight. I I, I wrestled with it because, you know, at not-for-profits, you don't offer, you know, three-year contracts and company cars. <laughs> yeah. um, and so it was, it was this decision that just took um, a, a period of time and it took a number of people speaking into my life. And finally, one day I said, okay, you know my wife's name is Melinda i said if you're if you're serious about this i'm serious i think that i would rather try it and be wrong than stay comfortable for the rest of my career and she said i think you were made for this and yeah. i said oh be really careful because i'll resign tomorrow and and she said bob i think you were made for this and so i met with the board worked out a 15-month transition plan so that we could get a new president in place. I didn't know where I was going to go or what I was going to do. And I just said, you know, I feel like I'm going to do anything I can to help in the space of human trafficking and specifically the sex trafficking um, and the commercial sexual exploitation of children. Um, And the board was loving and kind and supportive and fantastic and said in a very loving way, not in a critical or demeaning way. They all, they said, you know, you know, people don't leave this to go do that. Um, And I said, I know, and it terrifies me, but I'm, but I'm, I feel like I have to do it. So that's my unexpected, but what feels like very intentional pathway in.
2: Yeah, no, I love that. And I love the detail. How did you get to street grace specifically?
0: Yeah. In the trafficking field, you have just, you know, nationwide or globally, 90 something percent of the organization, it feels like work on the restorative care. And mm. we critically need that. If someone has been harmed by sexual exploitation or trafficking, I, I'm sure there are wounds that go as deep, but I don't know, I don't know wounds that go deeper. Mm. And so they need the best gold standard care that we can provide anywhere in the country, medical, health care, mental, you know, all job skills, training, parenting, all of that. But I didn't want to do that because I it doesn't in any way, please hear it doesn't in any way diminish that. That is critically important. But I wanted to go after the demand. I wanted to do mm. something different, sure. and I wanted to think about how we could do it. And we will never end sex trafficking by mm-hmm. following it around and trying to put the broken pieces back together. Um, again, critically important. But I wanted to target two things. I wanted to target education and prevention with children and teenagers in that 12 to 18 year bracket. And I wanted to target the buyers of sex and the traffickers because they live in our neighborhoods, they go to our schools um, and they play and coach our sports teams and they live in our communities. And I wanted to target them so that because when when somebody has to stop before they purchase illegal sex and pause and say, there's a one in three chance I'm going to end my career, my family, my mm-hmm. reputation in the community, and could spend some time behind bars if I make this next step. That's when we'll, that's when we'll push this tide back, and right. we're getting there, but I wanted to be on that side of it, the demand reduction side, and so I connected with some folks at Street Grace, met the previous CEO, and, um, and in a series of conversations over about six months or so, it just seemed like it was the appropriate and natural fit. And candidly, I remember going home and telling, again, my wife, if somebody can't do something significant with the board that is assembled at that organization, it's their Mm -hmm. own fault. Um, And that's the kind of organization I wanted to be connected with. and, and, And I'm thrilled to be here and have not looked back.
2: Yeah, I love that. Well, effective nonprofits, you know, always have the ability to tell stories about causes they champion. But how does street grace really tell the stories of sex trafficking victims in a delicate nature that shines light on the issue?
0: It's a great question. Yeah, and I think it's a really important question because candidly our philosophy on it is the stories aren't ours to tell. Mm-hmm. And again, I think that's a little I think that's a little unique in our approach. We don't our our broader philosophy <laughs> is that resources follow impact. So our job is to have an impact and stay focused on the mission. And, mm-hmm. I, and that, that, that's a later conversation. But specifically, I think one of the ways that you can tell what's the DNA of an organization and are not for profit in the trafficking space, but probably across the board, is how they honor the people that have been victimized by this. So how, how do they honor the survivors? And one of the things that we do is that survivor stories are not ours to tell. We engage with, and we have a survivor advisory board in Mm -hmm. every city where we have an office. Um, In fact, today we were shooting some videos with four members of the survivor advisory board where they are talking about not just the horrific part of their story, but the hope part of their story, the healing part of the story, the redemption part of the story, because that's far more powerful than the harmful part of the story. And candidly, once somebody who's been victimized by this or sexual exploitation starts the journey of healing, that's the hardest part of the story because Mm -hmm. that's when you have to look face-to-face with the stuff that you've been running from. And so we let the survivors tell their stories. We help and equip and support them in every way that we can. And then we spend our time talking about the how and together it's a really nice approach, and it engages and it connects us at the hip, so that everything that we do is survivor informed, and it is um, based on lived experiences from people who have walked this journey, not just our thoughts or our opinions.
1: Yeah, I love that storytelling is so compelling. <laughs> I can imagine if if we look back at the landscape of uh, the world we live in just in the last year, 18 months, um, 2020 was a year pandemic. (laughs) What is the landscape you're seeing now? Has it changed? What is different today maybe than it was back in 2019?
0: Yeah, I think, I I really think that the pandemic was, aside from the fact that it was a global tragedy, I think it was a very helpful thing for at least us and many, many not-for-profits and probably even corporations, um, because people, you know, I mean, a year ago now, people were panicked, and they were panicked and they pulled back, or they were panicked and they plateaued, or they were panicked and they prospered. But we were all kind of took a deep, a collective deep breath and said, is this really just going to last two weeks? And if not, what's it going to look like? And when's it going to end? And so I I think the folks that were panicked and pulled back and there were, again, appropriately so, a lot of not-for-profits that just immediately, and corporations as well, immediately went into self-preservation mode. How do we scale back? How do we cut back? How do we get in survival mode and make sure that we can weather the storm? Some said, you know, we're going to hang on to what we're on, we've are on. we got. We're going to grip it tight. And others said, how do we take something like this and figure out how to make us better, how to improve and fine tune and, and hone in on our strategies and our deliverables and focus Maybe we've got to tweak outcomes, but let's don't abandon outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so I think as a result of taking the third choice and, and Street Grace was very fortunate, and I won't even say it was strategic. We had begun for two years prior to that really embracing technology out of the philosophy that we said, we'll never defeat this one arrest, one prosecution and one rescue at a time. Every day that we do that, the bad guys get a little further ahead of us. So how do we use technology to really lean into this and disrupt the illegal business model. And so as a result of that, it was an easy pivot for us. And again, I don't say that because it was a strategic decision. We didn't know a pandemic was happening or coming, but it was helpful. So coming out of it, when we went into it, we sit down organizationally We said, we have three goals. One of them is we're working from home. We're not just mm-hmm. at home, we're working from home. The second one is we're gonna be more strategic and more intentional about building beneficial and productive relationships than we were the month before the pandemic hit. And we were very intentional about it. And the third one is we need to build a reliance and appropriate reliance on technology to scale up. So all of that was the philosophy was that when we come out of the pandemic, we are, we are prepared to scale and advance in an exponential exponential way, rather than just one more step at a time, um, and it's been it's been really productive and really helpful. We had a um, sadly, the need was has had increased so much as the entire world went online and children around the world, and especially the U.S. Were, we're not just not just went online, they were forced online before any right. of them, any of us, and any of our parameters were prepared. And so there was a dramatic spike in online inappropriate activity. So the technology and the works and the things that we do were were very active and we're very productive. And it is it has prepared us to move into this time. And as we're now able to kind of start getting out and about and move amongst our partnership. Uh, continue to grow. And, and our partnership with Corporate America continues to grow. And that's been the biggest part of the growth that we've experienced over the last two or three years.
1: Yeah,
2: I love that. Because I feel like just in my conversations with, um, you know, friends and and peers who work in the nonprofit space, that the need didn't go away when the world shut down, the needs increased dramatically. But yet it was almost like the nonprofit world was the least prepared for it. And so I love how you kind of, um, unbeknownst to you, I had some foresight, you know, that you were preparing so that you could take that opportunity to um continue to enhance the program that you had already created to really combat this in a way that when everybody was allowed to kind of go back to some sorts of normalcy, the new normal, that you were ready for that? Because, you know, like I said, that the need is there. How, how did you continue to really reach out to your donors and to volunteers? Uh, because that's another thing that I'm hearing is that there was so many people out of work, or their work changing, their free time changing, that a lot of nonprofits right now are struggling with donors and with volunteers. How did you guys combat that?
0: Yeah, for, for us, it was two things. One is our need for volunteers did virtually dry up. I mean, it, it, the, yeah. the opportunity to get out and serve went mm-hmm. away for probably a good nine to 12 months. It is, wow. it is just now slowly coming back. So from gotcha. that end of yeah. it we felt it just like others did what we what we decided not to do though is to allow that to be a reason that we don't communicate to volunteers. And so yeah. folks that were engaged and involved with us on the front end of 2020 were as they were as well informed if not more so at the end of 2020 than they were going into it. We also had you know some quarterly calls that we would invite donors and, and volunteers onto. We also did some advanced donor training. I, I'm sorry, volunteer training. Um, mm-hmm. Advanced donor training might be a good idea. We might <laughs> think about that. I don't, I don't know. Um, but the um, but we but we were again very intentional about the communication. And what we also said was we were in a position financially when we went into this that we had been good stewards. And so during the pandemic, there were a couple of opportunities that came along for us to absorb some other Mm -hmm. organizations that had very similar DNAs. So there wasn't this cultural challenge and they had very similar or missional alignment with the work we did and how we did it. So um, so we were actually able to, you know, absorb and grow um, financially and numerically and broaden our impact during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And um, and that continues today, I think, just. Because the foundation and the steps were put in place, um, it's it's been interesting. And, I, and again, I, mm-hmm. I think a lot of it has to go to go back to our board. I mean, we have a, a mm-hmm. board, and for an I, there's probably nothing more important to a well run not for profit than a f- high functioning board. There's also Definitely. probably nothing more detrimental to a not for profit than a board that isn't well run sure. and well fun. And so yeah. our board. Right. Puts wind in our sails, um, and um, and they are a governing board, but they are an engaged board, and it's allowed us to do exponentially more than we than we would have thought that we could have accomplished. And so they leaned in. Our donors leaned in. Um, I mean, we had absolutely. We like others. We had donors that shifted and said, "Hey, during this time, we feel like this is an unprecedented time, and we've got to respond in an unprecedented way over here sure. because of the pandemic." But, and, and then as soon as you would, you know, hang up that call and you would sit back in your chair and take a deep breath and say, what are we going to do? The next day, somebody would call and say, hey, we just kind of assumed that during this time, there might be some normal funds that you, recall, you all had become accustomed to that were being diverted to other things. And we wanted to lean in and see if there's anything we could do to help. And, and sometimes, I mean, I, I'll give you an example that literally just two or three months ago, we were a finalist for a, a very large grant that would have helped us roll out a program in a school system that we were really stoked about. I mean, it was it was going to be a high impact program. We we got the word back that because we weren't frontline, you know, response to the pandemic and things like that in their in their minds, um, that the grant went to another organization. We mm-hmm. celebrated with them, and then we also like ah oh, shoot, um, within yeah. twenty four hours we received three separate phone calls from the same location that this grant, same state that this grant was going to come from, that gave us 20% more money between those three phone calls than the large grant that we would have. And within 48 hours, we were right back on track. That's because we were intentional about relationships. And in our situation, it's also because I think we're very intentional about Trying to make sure that what we do is honoring to God and, and, and that we're good stewards of, of what He's provided.
1: Yeah. So, with all that, right, th- first of all, that's an amazing testimony to what you guys are doing. But do, do you foresee that anything has really now in the not for profit kind of arena, is anything changed forever?
0: Like, yeah, we'll never so. be
1: the same again. Like, what's new? What's going to be mm-hmm. new and different? in, in this, you know, kind of industry?
0: I think two things specifically, and there's probably more than that. One is the use of technology. If you Mm -hmm. would have asked me a year, a year and a half ago, if I could have effectively raised money through virtual conversations, if I would have answered, I would have had a smirk on my face and probably then walked away. Um, I would have said, no way, not going to happen. It just can't. A, that's not true. I thought it was not true. But just because I thought it was not true doesn't mean it was not true. Um, <laughs> right. it, that can be done very effectively. And folks, because of the broad way that this hit us all, folks became very open and very accessible through technology. The second thing is, I think not-for-profits that weren't are, being, are really wrestling through the process right now of how to not just be passionate. You know, not-for-profits are one of the hallmarks of not-for-profits is passion, right? Um, but how to be passionate about good data and appropriate outcomes. So Mm -hmm. don't lose passion, but focus the passion. There's got to be, there's got to be, it's got to be built on good data and there have to be appropriate outcomes. Um, I think those are going to be really healthy. I mean, I I do think it's going to continue to create some consolidation corporately Mm -hmm. and in the not-for-profit world. But I think those two things, if we can walk away with a better use and idea of how to, how to use technology to scale up and how to be passionate about good data and the right outcomes, mm-hmm. I think those are game changers for us. I also think I was reminded during the pandemic and talking to a number of friends that have businesses or run businesses that um, I'm guilty of saying probably in times past, now that I'm in the not-for-profit world, I couldn't imagine going back to corporate America. I think that's wrong. I think that's a shallow statement. I think not-for-profits tend to focus on people and learning, and not do their not always do their due diligence in the profit and loss. So it's a P and L, but it's a different one. I think business right. tends to focus on the P and L and not always focus on the people and the learning that can take place. I think that was my own fault. I, th- I think I could be as passionate about a job in corporate America as long as I was allowed to focus again on impact and not just the financial component of it alone. And I think as you do that and people understand your care and compassion and concern, I think that's where they engage with you in sustainable ways, not transactional ways. And so I I don't think you have to be in the not-for-profit world to care about people or impact Mm -hmm. their lives. And I don't think you have to be in the business world to run your organization well and be good financial stewards.
2: Yeah, well, you're preaching to the choir here because that's what that's what T and I talk <laughs> about all do. the time. Yep. That's the vision that we cast, and that's what we like to remind people is that you can have a mission and a passion and phenomenal core values and uh, be a very profitable business. You don't have to exchange one for the other. Right. Similarly, in the not-for-profit world, um, you won't have any business, for-profit or not-for-profit, if you don't pay attention to the dollars and cents. Yeah. And um, and so if you're really passionate about a cause and about changing the world with a not-for-profit, you also have to understand what a p and looks like and, yeah. um, and how to engage donors and how to use mm-hmm. your funds wisely so that mm-hmm. your ultimate mission, you're accomplishing it. Yeah. So I, I love how, how you said that. Um, you know, what, one last question before we end here. I know that not every listener is owning or running a not-for-profit but I can almost guarantee that every single listener out there wants to do good in the world and they want to work with non-for-profits and helping to make this world a better place. So for those of us who just are looking to kind of put our money where our mouth is, you know, boots to the ground, what can we do right now in this unprecedented time to help out our favorite nonprofits?
0: No, I think that's great. And that's fortunately, that's that's becoming a fairly common question. And I think the pandemic has kind right. of caused that. That's it's another upside to the pandemic, if if you allow me to say it that way. I think the first thing anybody can do is just ask themselves, what resonates with me? I mean, what what mm. rings your bell, what makes your heart beat a little bit faster? It may be food insecurity, it may be homelessness, it may be education, healthcare, it could be sex trafficking, but what What makes you sit up a little bit straighter and lean in a little bit more? And wherever you are, there's somebody or some bodies in your community that's doing that. Google it. Come up with a couple of organizations. Read the mission statement and a couple of lines below that (laughs) and see if that still resonates. And if it does, reach out. So I tell people all the time, identify what, what brings life to you reach out to the people that are doing it, and then pick one to engage with. Mm-hmm. So often when you hear about so many of these things, you think, this is such a this is such a huge or a massive problem. I don't see how I could make a difference. It, and you may not be able to individually, but when you reach out, you're connecting to a much larger group of people that are all standing arm in arm. And one of the things we say in trafficking all the time is, If you just focus on demand or you just focus on education or you just focused on restorative care um, or if you don't focus on training law enforcement and you don't focus on, you know, the school systems, it's like swerving around a pothole in the road. You're not that significant. But if we come together and we lock arms, there's a comprehensive approach. And that's how we walk towards. It's kind of that Red Rover approach. I mean, you just we lock arms and we move forward. And that makes a meaningful difference mm-hmm. and nothing breathes life into a not-for-profit more than somebody reaching out saying, I've, I've been stirred by the cause. I've looked at the work that you do and I'd like to figure out how I can get engaged and engage. Mm-hmm. Don't be scared. The word engage isn't a code word for money. <laughs> I mean, it can be, but that may not be your gift. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have people that do pro bono attorney work for us. We have, we have the largest advertising firm in the world that does pro bono work for us. And all of those things make us exponentially Mm -hmm. better. Everything that we measure doesn't have a dollar sign beside it.
2: I love that. Well, Bob, this has been so enlightening. I appreciate you sharing really what you're seeing on the landscape for the uh, not-for-profit businesses, but also encouraging those of us who, uh, again, don't run it or own one to get out there and to find something that makes us uh, sit up a little straighter and lean in a little harder. So, thank you so much for joining us today. Honored to be here. Thank you for all the work that you are doing to stop human trafficking. You know, to really change, specifically here in Atlanta, but all across the world. So, thank you.
0: Thank you. Really appreciate thank it. Thank you,
2: Bob. Well, talk about inspiring. Gosh, I love what they're doing over there at Street Grace. And that was really good to hear what's happening in the not for profit world uh, through the pandemic.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. He was very um, powerful. The whole topic is really powerful. Uh, you know, for me, I really loved how he talked about, and I literally wrote notes how he talked about. You know, nonprofits not getting, not forgetting Mm -hmm. that they should stay focused on good data and outcomes. At the end of the day, the outcomes matter. They're, they're trying to serve a purpose, help a community. Um, Mm -hmm. and being able to make incremental progress in, in whatever area they're focusing on is important. So I, I loved that. I think it's very relevant to a lot of our listeners who may just be business Mm -hmm. owners. Um, so we get that and we align with that conceptually. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's
2: also important, nonprofit or for-profit, for you to remember to tell stories. We do that here a lot at Belay because we want our team members to feel connected to what our mission and our vision is. And so we become great storytellers. And I think that um, not-for-profits also need to remember to be great storytellers. But to tell it from the perspective- of the community which, in which you're trying to help. So Absolutely. I like how he said mm-hmm. the, the individuals who've been a part of this human trafficking uh, ring are the ones who are telling their story. And I think that's that right. that's so powerful. So if you can get, yeah. perhaps if you're a for-profit, get your client mm-hmm. to tell the story about how they've been changed through your product or service. Or if you've got, um, you know, an employee or a contractor who can do that. I think that that goes a long way.
1: I, I totally agree.
2: Yeah, such good stuff from Bob today. Well, as always, we have a download for you so you can take your One Next Step. This week's download is for-profit leadership lessons from a nonprofit leader, a distilled bulleted list of some takeaways from our conversation.
1: Yes, it's going to be a good one. So text the phrase One Next Step to 31996 or visit onenextsteppodcast.com and you'll get access to today's resource to help you keep moving forward. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next week for another episode of The One Next Step. Start by making today count. Come back to the podcast next time when we'll have executive coach Amy Baylog on to help us lead beyond our circumstances so we're not thrown off our game by the ups and downs of leadership. Here's a clip from our conversation. There's been a lot over these years we've written about, you know, executive presence. And, you know, you know your mojo, you got a strong, solid voice. You come in, you know, Mm -hmm. articulate, but there's relational presence to be able to go in and be aware that I have to be calm and at peace with myself with, I'm going to introduce tension in this room. I'm going to pull somebody in the conversation that might not want to be pulled in. All of those things, you have to be in your center.
0: Thanks for listening to One Next Step. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. Then join us next time for more practical business tips and tools to help you get more done, grow your business, and lead your team with confidence. For more episodes, show notes, and helpful resources, visit OneNextStepPodcast.com.